If you would, let's just have a moment of silence. If you would, just pause and still your heart and calm your mind. And pray this prayer. Say, Jesus, speak to me today. Father, we today humble ourselves before you and ask you to give us wisdom, to give us understanding. God, as we deal with a difficult subject, I pray that you would help our minds to be open to what you say, to what your word proclaims. I pray, God, that you'd help us to set aside uh, our differences and our conceptions and to focus on you, to focus upon your word and about what you proclaim. God, I'm thankful that we serve a God who doesn't do things like we would do them. One of the ways I know that it's true is because, God, so often is not what I would do. But I'm thankful for God who is not like me, whose ways are far above mine and whose thoughts I cannot even begin to fully ascertain. And so, Lord, it is with that understanding that we humble ourselves before you and invite you to speak to us today. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we pray all of these things. Amen. We're going to be in Mark chapter 12 here in just a moment. And we're going to be looking at biblical authority and politics. I know this is a hot button and I know I'm a glutton for a punishment, but I'd like to remind you, I am not purposefully picking these subjects out. This is just what comes next in the scripture. okay? and so as we look at this, uh, I know I'd like to go ahead and give you a couple of email addresses. Should you have any problems? That's David at rpcstaff.org and Bob. So if you have, if you are really upset, I would encourage you to contact these elders. They would love to hear from you. And uh, what is the what is biblical authority in politics? It's interesting. You know, <clears throat> there are two extremes in, in North Korea right now. It just happened this past week. Uh, there were about a half a dozen. Students who were arrested because they found out that they were reading a Bible, and so which is against against the law in North Korea. And so uh, there's also the uh, Maldives. There are several countries of this nature where it is. There's only one religion. Every other religion is illegal, and any practice or uh, any participation whatsoever is deemed, deemed illegal. So that's certainly an extreme. They are literally told you cannot worship. Christ, okay? So uh, that's an extreme that's given. And uh, that's an example of where you wouldn't obey the authorities, okay? And there's a great price to be paid in, in those countries uh, for those individuals, as was seen this past week. But also there's, uh, there's the other extreme. We live in the United States. We live under the government that God has given us, that God has ordained. And uh, there are individuals who have chosen not to pay their taxes. Uh, one of those is uh, is Wesley Snipes. You're familiar with him. Uh, Wesley Snipes right now is serving uh, a prison sentence for three years. He's he's in prison and uh, because he didn't pay his taxes. Said he didn't have to pay his taxes. Didn't recognize the 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 federal government as his authority. And um, he had done some tax evasion, some other things. And uh, so now he's in prison. And uh, you have that right to not pay your taxes, but you also have the right to go to jail when you don't pay them. 
Okay, another guy named Ken Hovind, who was who's a minister, who was uh, who has a ministry, and um, he said, you know what, this is God's money, and I'm not going to give to God. I'm not going to give God's money to the government. I don't believe in the government. Don't believe in what they're doing, and so I'm not giving them God's money. And they said, that's fine. You have the right to go to jail, and so he's in prison for ten years. And of course, he there are a lot of there are a lot of other things that went into him. But the bottom line, um, tax evasion and uh, false representation, fraudulent claims, and uh, he's decided that it's all God's money, and the government's not welcome in any. Of course, he's spending God's money, and uh, as you and I do as well. And here's the problem: the Bible has given us three institutions, and it's not really up to debate whether you like it or not. Now. Now, some theologians would say there are a couple other institutions that you can add to it, and they're probably right. But we're going to go there. Are three primary, three I think most would agree. Number one uh, institution is marriage and the family, okay? The institution of marriage, the institution of the family, if you want to call it the home. That's a, a biblical institution that has been given to us in Scripture. Number two uh, is the church. If you go to Matthew uh, chapter 16, verse 18, upon this rock, I'll build my church. It's part of the name that we have for our church, Rock Point. Uh, Jesus institutes the church. You also see in the book of Ephesians chapter 1, Jesus said he is the head of the church. Okay, it's an institution. The church is the institution that God has given us through Scripture. But there's a third one. It's called the government. God has ordained government as an institution. It's not something we just made up. It's not just a, a uh, opportunity we have. <clears throat> it's not just a prerogative. It's an institution divinely established by God. As Tommy read a while ago, Romans chapter 13, not a popular text, uh, but Paul makes it very clear that this is ordained by God, that government itself is ordained by God. Now, Jesus is going to address this issue of authority in politics. And it and it doesn't mean there are two extremes that we just talked about. One, I don't have to do what the government says. I don't have to observe it. Number two, I must give them total allegiance and worship. And Jesus is going to address this issue, and he's going to do it differently than anyone has done up to this point. And he does it differently, quite frankly, than most of us do many times. And so I want us to read this text, and I want us to think about it and talk about it. Uh, for just a moment this morning. I want to start with chapter 12, and we're going to kind of breeze through this first section, and then we'll camp out on the more controversial aspect. Jesus is dealing with the authority issue. They have been challenging authority, and Jesus turns around and gives them a parable here about authority and about who He is and about who they are. And uh, in your bulletin, we've got a little listing that kind of gives you a little uh, insight, a little definition for these words in case you don't catch all this. Uh, that will maybe make it more understandable if you want to go back and read through it later on. And then he began to speak to them in parables, speaking of Jesus. And a man planted, he's speaking of God here in this illustration, a vineyard. Uh, the vineyard is used multiple times in the Old Testament as a symbol of Israel. So a man planted a vineyard. <clears throat> God has planted uh, Israel, and, and he put a fence around it. He dug out a pit for a wine press and built a watchtower. And then he leased it to tenant farmers. Now, those tenant farmers uh, are the leaders, the religious leaders, the political leaders, those in authority over Israel. And he went away. And at harvest time, he sent a slave. Uh, your translation may use the word servant. He's speaking of the prophets here. He sent a prophet to the farmers to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard from the farmers. But they took him and they beat him and they sent him away empty-handed. 
Again, he sent another prophet or slave to them, and they hit him on the head and treated him shamefully. Then he sent another, and they killed that one. And he also sent many others. They beat some, and they killed some. And he had one to send, a beloved son. He still sent his beloved son. And finally, he sent them to them, saying, They will respect my son, speaking of Jesus. But those tenant farmers said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? Speaking of God here. He will come and destroy the farmers and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read the scripture? And then he quotes Psalms 118, verses 22 through 23. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came from the Lord and is wonderful in our eyes. Because they knew that he had said this parable against him, they were looking for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Now we'll pick up in verse 13. The Bible says, Then they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to him to trap him by what he said. Now let's stop right there and understand who they are. They are the Sanhedrin council. The Sanhedrin, for a lack of a better way to explain it, and in the interest of time, is basically the supreme court of Israel at this time. There's 71 leaders And they are basically the final authority. Of course, they are ultimately under the rule of Rome. But in the culture itself, uh, they are the religious and really, in many senses, the political leaders of uh, the Jewish nation, of Israel. And probably, uh, you know, they are one of the primary targets that Jesus is speaking about at this point when he gives the parable of the vineyard. So the Sanhedrin. Now, in the Sanhedrin, there are at least two groups There are the Sadducees, which we don't have time to get into, and the Pharisees. So we have two uh, religious groups that comprise of the Supreme Court, uh, so to speak, of the Sanhedrin Council. And um, what they do is they decide at this point, Jesus is a serious threat. He's a serious problem. He's already cleansed the temple. He talks about the kingdom. Many believe he's the Messiah. This is a problem. So what do they do? They, at this point, sin. Pharisees and Herodians to trap them. Now, what's interesting about this, these two groups are politically opposite, okay? You've got the Herodians who are loyal to King Herod, who is a subject and appointed by the Roman government. So, in a sense, uh, they are loyal and supportive of the Roman government and certainly of Herod. And so, they're on one end of the political spectrum. And then you have the Sadducees who believe that Rome should not be here, they should not have any authority, and they are very politically correct about how they speak about it, but they certainly are not in support of Rome at all. Matter of fact, uh, most if the Zealots had any religious affiliation, it would have been out of the Sadducees. So uh, on one of the far extremes, you have the Herodians, who are completely loyal, who profit from the Roman government, their positions, their titles, their income is all come, comes from the Roman government. And on this side... If you wanted the far extreme, you have the zealots who are looking to start a rebellion, a revolution to rid themselves of the Roman Empire. So, uh, and Sadducees certainly would be not that far, but right next to it. And again, those who were zealots would have been probably Sadducees by religious affiliation. So we've got two, two opposite sides of the spectrum, okay? 
And so they are sent to Jesus to ask this question because here's what's going to happen. They're thinking, you know what, when Jesus answers this question, which, by the way, this was a political hot button of that day. It was a huge issue. You wanted to get temperatures up. Then you began to talk about the tax. Still do it today, can't you? And you, you get people's temperature way up. And this was probably the key political issue. So they send people from opposite sides of the spectrum to Jesus. And they said, all right, ask this question, because when he does it, we're going to set him up. We're going to set him up good. And however he answers, he's going to be in trouble. So that's the mindset right here. They've come up with a foolproof plan. (coughs) So they send the Herodians and the Pharisees to trap him. And when they came, they said to him, teacher, we know you are truthful. They're setting him up. They're flattering him. They're acting like they're showing him respect and honor. We know that you defer to no one. They're not leaving him any wiggle room, or so they think. For you don't show partiality, but you teach truthfully the way of God. It is, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or should we not pay? Teacher, Jesus, what should we do? Should we pay this tax or should we not pay the tax? And by the way... Uh, most scholars think he's talking about a very specific tax because if you look in the other Gospels, in uh, Matthew and Luke, you'll see it was a tribute tax. It was a, there was a lot of different words for it, a census tax, a toll tax, or a poll tax, or a head tax. Basically, it was a tax you paid to be a citizen uh, there under Roman rule and to enjoy the roads, the systems, the government, the protection, the water systems, the whole deal. Matter of fact, I have an exact replica of a a denarius that they were uh, expected to pay every year just to be citizens uh, under Roman rule, okay? So that's the the coin. Matter of fact, since you can't see this one, I want to show you another one. This Or not another one, this is the same one. And the top one's actually, uh, 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 this is actually a picture in the bottom just so you can see it a little bit better. Uh, But this is a picture of Tiberius Caesar. He is the Caesar, the king, so to speak, uh, who's in authority during the time that we're talking about. Most of Jesus' life, incidentally. Okay, so most of Jesus' life, from the time Jesus was probably about six years old up until now, this is who uh, the Caesar is. And on this side of the coin, it says, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine God, Augustus. Okay? Caesar, king, so to speak, Tiberius, son of God. All right? So that's on one side of the coin. As you can imagine, uh, the, the Jewish Pharisees and those who were of the conservative, that, that, this was blasphemy. They had a huge problem with that, okay? I know some of you maybe remember this email that used to go out probably about 10 years ago when these coins came out. Uh, you've got the, the gold dollars that, that have come out. And uh, there are a lot of people saying, don't use those. It doesn't say in God we trust. Get rid of them. Don't use them. And, and uh, that's not right. And and actually, to be honest with you, it's on the side in God the Trust. It actually is on there. Uh, so I didn't, I'm not throwing my money away. You're welcome to. And uh, But I remember I was sitting at lunch one time, and a guy, and I pulled it out to pay. He goes, Brother, I don't use those coins. I think those are blasphemous. They don't have God on them. I said, well, actually, it is on there. And he goes, oh, it is on there. But uh, anyway, uh, so anyway, we think this is bad. Think of what they had. We, we think it's bad that we just put in God we trust on the side. They're saying not only, forget not being on there, we're saying that Caesar is son of the divine God, Augustus. 
Then on the back of it, if that's not enough, it says maximum pontiff. Most of you are familiar with that, or some of you may be familiar with that phrase. And it means high priest or even highest priest. So on one side, Caesar, son of the divine God. On the other side, high priest. To show you that religiously, he is the ultimate authority as well. Let there be no doubt. So this coin was loaded, man. I mean, many of them thought it was blasphemous to even touch it. So there, there we are. So Jesus is dealing with this. And they said, should we pay the tax? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius and let's look at it. So they brought one. Whose image and inscription is on this, he asked. And they said, Caesar's. Caesar's image is on that. Matter of fact, we know that Caesar literally had these made at his palace. He used his silver, had his inscription, his face put upon it, and had those words printed on there. So literally, it was Caesar. And then Jesus said to them, Give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God. And they were amazed at him. Now, let's do a little bit of understanding here, first of all. Should we pay? Let's go back to verse 19. Should we or should we not pay? Again, this is the political hot button right here of, of Jesus' day. Should we pay that? I mean, we all know that that pagan ruler is take, making a divine claim, even thinks he's the high priest. Should we pay that? Many that didn't. Matter of fact, we were talking about zealots a while ago. Zealots didn't do it. Essenes and zealots did not pay the tax. Uh, they were rebels. They were uh, trying to form a rebellion. The Essenes just decided we're going to pick up and move to the desert and live in caves. And the zealots were constantly trying to rile the public up and to start a war. It's basically what they were trying to do, to overthrow the Roman government. There was a guy 25 years before this time called Judas the Galilean. And Judas the Galilean uh, decided, you know what, he had, he had had enough. And when this tax was instituted 25 years earlier, he decided, you know what, hey, I've had enough. And he got a band of, he's got a, a band of brothers, so to speak, together. He kind of got his own little guerrilla army together. And you know what they did? First thing they did, they went in and they cleansed the temple. They kicked out all the Gentiles. They moved all those who were Romans. They kicked them out by force. They pushed them out. And he said this, he goes, this is the kingdom of God coming in. He said, this is the kingdom of God. And many of them looked at him as a messianic figure. Maybe this is the Messiah. And so he took upon that mantle, so to speak. And then you know what the third thing he said? Don't pay the tax. Don't pay it. Don't give it to him. We're now under God's kingdom. We're just going to give it to God or we're going to keep it ourselves. But we're not going to recognize the government anymore. So. We're cleansing the temple. We're issuing, issuing in or we're, we're ushering in the, the kingdom of God and we're not paying the tax. Guess what happened to him? He was captured and killed, executed. And his followers disbanded as they saw, you know what, this is probably not what we want to be doing right now. So this is fresh on the mind of many of those who are listening to Jesus. Jesus says, don't pay the tax. What does that mean? Well, think about it. Jesus, his whole message has been about the kingdom of God, about the fulfillment of the prophecy that he is, in fact, the Messiah. 
This is the kingdom of God. He talks about it in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm bringing the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is coming. What else has Jesus done? Well, Jesus just got through cleansing the temple. Just got through cleansing the temple just a few days earlier. So there's only one thing left. If you're a, a revolutionary, if you're starting a rebellion, then they're wanting to know, so, should we pay the tax? Because you said that this is the kingdom of God that's coming with you and that you're proclaiming the kingdom of God. You've cleansed the temple. Sounds like Judas the Galilean. Should we pay the tax? And if he says, pay the tax, <clears throat> then I am certain, you know, you've got those Herodians and you've got those Roman officials. They're going to usher him out right then. You're done. You're, you're going to at minimum be prison, maybe worse right now. So they think they have him. <clears throat> Should you pay the tax? <clears throat> On the other hand, if he says, no, you don't have to pay the tax. You, you know what, just, excuse me, no, you should pay the tax, excuse me. Do whatever Rome tells you. Whatever Caesar says, you just need to do it. Then the majority of the people are going to go, you said that there's a new kingdom coming. You said that things were going to be different. You see, we like to think of the kingdom of God as simply being spiritual, which in large part it is. But can I tell you, that's a very Western way to think. And that's something that's kind of really more developed than the last 400 years. Before that time, virtually everyone saw the kingdom as something physical and spiritual. If anything, in Jesus' day, they saw it more physical than spiritual, that, that um, there would be a new rule and a new order, and that the, the, uh, hunger, the hungry would be fed, and that those who had uh, been uh, misaligned and those who had been abused would be set free and it would be made right. That was the understanding of the kingdom of the local Jew and, and really for, for much of history. And Jesus certainly is bringing a strong spiritual component, but it's a both. Jesus is ushering in a kingdom and he's ushering in a people who care about hunger. That's one of the reasons that we're doing Feed the Hunger, that care about uh, those who are in need, that care about those who are marginalized, okay? That's part of the kingdom of God. And quite frankly, it ought to affect the way that uh, we view politics, the way that we view government. And so that's part of it. And we can get mad and think that it's not, but the truth of it is Jesus uh, makes an endorsement here that it's more than just spiritual, okay? It's how we live our lives. It's what we do with our resources. It's the impact that we make. And that's the way everyone would have understood it during that day. And it's interesting, they said, uh, Jesus said, give me a dollar. Give me a denarius. He doesn't even have one. Which, if you go back to Matthew chapter 5 and you look at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom. Here's the truth. Jesus Touches one. That was kind of, I don't know if you should have done that. Jesus, a lot of people probably thought. But he doesn't even have one. And he goes, whose image is on this? And you know, it's also very interesting. Not side note, I don't want to chase a rabbit. But if you look at Matthew uh, chapter 22 later on, 24, right in there, Jesus is accused of not paying the tax. Real interesting. That's one of the, tr Trump, one of the charges they give about it. 
But what does he say, in fact? <clears throat> he says, you know what? Whose image is on there? Give to Caesar's what's Caesar's and to God's what's God's. Now, let's talk about that practically for a moment. What does that mean for us today? Well, let's talk about unbiblical actions within our society that Jesus didn't endorse. First of all, Jesus doesn't endorse rebellious violence. He just doesn't. And, um, you know, sometimes you see scenarios, and we're not going to go into them, where uh, the government is over, overthrown uh, by officials or by dictators who are not government officials and who have disbanded. And that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about governments that have been set in place, like we have in the United States of America. So the zealots took that approach. You know what? We will kill and destroy till we get what we want. And that's what Judas the Galilean did. Jesus does not endorse this. Number two, unbiblical action. Let's just drop out of society. Every once in a while I hear somebody go, I'm moving to northern Canada and just living there. Well, no, you're not. And if you do, you'll want to get back here as soon as you can. All right, you're not going to go live in a cave in northern Canada. That's what the Essenes did. They said, you know what? We don't like this. We don't like the government. We don't like the Roman rule. We're moving to the desert and we're living in caves. Jesus doesn't endorse that. Okay, that's Jesus didn't say, just leave the country. Just leave the culture. It's not something Jesus endorses. Thirdly, Jesus does not endorse cultural religion. Cultural religion, what do I mean by this? I'd, I'd like to remind you of those uh, emails that I put up a while ago. If you have a problem. Would you put those back up there? So You might want to write these down right now. These, there's, That's who you want to write. Okay. All right, number one. Let me give you some examples of cultural religion. Saturday nights. You can't do church on Saturday night. That's not the Lord's Day. Sunday is the Lord's Day. Well, guess what? If you were a Jew, you know when, you know when Sunday starts? It starts on Saturday night when the sun goes down. All right? Even though it's not a... By the way, it'd still be fine. All right? If that, we get on Saturday morning, it'd be all right. Which was the original Sabbath. But we'll, don't get me into all that. Um, so that's cultural religion. Sometimes we just think that's wrong. How about this one? Dress. I remember my dad saying this. And he's a good man, good guy. But it was almost kind of religion. Hey, we put on our best clothes for Sunday. And you you come to this church. Some people are wearing jeans. They're not wearing, they're not dressing up. None of you wear ties, by the way. Uh, and if you do, you don't look right in here. So, but, but we grew up that way. And that's cultural religion. It's not biblical. It's not a tenet of the faith. It's just cultural. We don't worship that. Here's another one. Worship styles. Some of you think we ought to be doing more hymns. I'm sure Jesus had hymn books. He didn't, by the way. Most of our hymns were 17, 1800s. I don't know what those poor people did for 1800 years without hymns. Okay, that's cultural religion. How about this one? If you're a Christian, you'll vote Republican. Oh, I can't believe he said that. Makes me mad. That's because you believe in cultural religion. Remember the email address right up there, okay? <laughs> somebody somebody made a big groan last service. You know, guys, we have to determine. Let me say this. My, my faith should impact the culture, but the culture is not to impact my faith. 
Okay? My faith should impact the culture that I'm in. But the culture is not to define my faith. That's cultural religion. And those may all be great things to do if that's what you want to do. But let's not confuse them with the Word of God and what God has dictated to us in Scripture. Okay, now that we're all quiet and listening. Biblical actions within the society that Jesus does endorse. Compliance to government authority. Compliance to government authority. Remember we read in Romans chapter 1, excuse me, Romans chapter 13, verse 1 through 7, that God has instituted and ordained government as our authority. Okay, he's put it in place. This is not man-made. This is something God has established. So, number one, we are to comply with the government. What does it mean to comply? Well, I'll give you three simple things to comply with the government. Number one, obey the law. Okay? Obey the law. And I will say this. If there's a law you feel like you can't obey, then you have the right to say, you know what, I can't do that. But recognize we're in a society where you will be placed in jail. All right? You can say, I, I just can't. In good conscience, in my faith, paid my taxes. Okay? We have a place for you where you can stay free of charge. All right? And again, it may not be what we like, but that's the way it is. It's the government God has given us. Okay? This authority God has placed on. Number two, uh, pay our taxes. I know a lot of people don't like it. Hey, at least we don't have Caesar, the son of the divine God, on our coinage. All right? We pay our taxes. That doesn't mean that we can't express our opinions, that we can't vote, that we can't write our congressman, that we can't let our voice be heard. Certainly we can, but at the end of the day, if it's the law, we must comply with it. And thirdly, uh, what does it mean to comply with the government is that we respect them. We respect the offices. We honor the office of authority. So that's what it means to comply with the government. But you know, also something Jesus doesn't do is he... He limits government control in this statement. He actually does. He, he doesn't say, give the government whatever they want. Matter of fact, he, he uses the word. They say, he said, what's the image given to, to us here? And they said, it's Caesar's image. He said, I want, you to rem, I want you to render to Caesar what is Caesar's, but to God what is God's. So what are we to give God? We are to give God ultimate worship. You see, they were in a culture that we can't even begin to understand where it would soon be that you had to say Caesar is Lord. People would literally die for their faith because they wouldn't say Caesar is God, Caesar is Lord. And so many would be killed in the future. And matter of fact, some were even killed uh, before. So depending on the Caesar and upon the situation. So God basically, Jesus basically said, look, you are to comply, but you don't give final and ultimate worship or final uh, and ultimate allegiance to the government. If it asks you to do something that is not in keeping with your faith, uh, then you must stand. Now, we see Paul and, or excuse me, John and Peter doing this in uh, Acts chapter 4, verses 18 through 20. When the, the city officials bring him in, they go, we forbid you to preach Jesus Christ. Do not speak this name again. And they said, you know what, do what you want, but it is not our right. We are basically representatives, ambassadors of Christ, and we must preach the gospel. So do what you must, okay? And so that's what we saw happen in North Korea this past week, okay? So those things are going to happen. There are situations, uh, and 
but we comply with the law until it infringes upon our faith and our worship of God. Okay? And so we are to worship God, but we are to respect the government. That's what Jesus is implying here. That's what he's saying. He's saying there are limitations. And that, again, that was a big deal. That was a day and age where uh, most of the Caesars believed that they were God. And if they didn't believe they were God, then a God had appointed them. So they had ultimate rule. They could do what they want and they could ask you to worship them. It was very relevant. And it's still very relevant in certain countries today. So what does that mean for me? Well, let me give you a great quote by Martin Luther. Martin Luther. And this is what he had to say in a very tumultuous time in history. The church of the New Testament did not attempt to save its existence by making a concordat with Nero or Domitian, who were both Roman emperors and whom, by the way, uh, both uh, significantly persecuted Christians. In their great persecution. So the church didn't say, hey, let's make a compromise here. They didn't go to the government and say, let's, let's work out a compromise. They also didn't by stirring up a rebellious revolution against these tyrants or by making an alliance with the Persian Empire, but by simply confessing the truth of the gospel and building up a truly confessing church whose members were prepared to die for their faith. It's a great statement. So what does that mean for us today? Well, for authority, we are to respect our authority that has been given to us. We are to comply by paying our taxes, by obeying the law, by being involved. What a wonderful right and privilege we've been given to vote, to write our congressmen, to sit down with our congressmen, to tell them what we think, to write in print, to speak out and to speak for. It's a great privilege, and we should be using it. And number three, to worship, to pray for our government. Do you realize multiple times in the New Testament, we are commanded to pray for our officials, for our government. So that's the way I want us to conclude this morning. If you would like to visit, all kidding aside, I'm I'm happy to visit with you. And I know this is a loaded subject, and there are a lot of different nuances, but here's what we know. We know that God has ordained the institution of government. We are to respect and honor our authorities. We are to comply with the law and pay our taxes. And we are to pray for our government officials. So that's what we're going to do right now. So would you bow with me for just a moment? If you would, I want to invite you for just a moment to just ask God to place his hand upon our president, Barack Obama, that God would give him wisdom and discernment and guidance and leadership. As you continue to pray for him, pray for uh, Vice President Joe Biden. Pray for our governor, Perry.
for our senators and congressmen, Cruz and Cornyn, Burgess and Nelson. Pray for our local uh, government, for our mayors and our council and city officials. Father in heaven, we thank you that we live in a country that has been so immensely blessed. And God, I thank you for the institution of government that you have provided for us. That, uh, Lord, there's law, there's order. Uh, that, God, you have given us the blessing of being protected. Uh, God, of being blessed with everything from roads to an opportunity to voice our opinions for opportunity and a blessing to vote. But Lord, with that opportunity and that responsibility comes, Lord, what You require of us. And one of the things You require of us is to pray. So God, I pray that we would pray for our country, for the leaders of our country, for the future of our country. God, we ask that You would do what we cannot do alone. And that is guide and direct and to lead our leaders. God, we will voice our opinions through voting, through writing, through our voice. But ultimately, we know you are in charge and you are in authority. And God, we will not compromise our faith by in any form giving worship to our government or to our officials. We will trust you and obey you first, but we will respect and honor and comply as citizens of your kingdom, as you have requested the government that you have put before us. And Lord, I pray, while that is difficult for some, that you would remind us that you are the ultimate ruler. You are the ultimate king and that this is your kingdom. Your kingdom will come. Your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That you will give us our daily bread. And Lord, I pray that we would rest upon that truth and upon that fact that comes from the very mouth of your son, Jesus. So today, Lord, we worship you. We thank you. And for those who don't know you, Lord, I pray that they would uh, recognize your grace and forgiveness. They would recognize, Father, their need for You. And they would receive Your forgiveness and Your grace. And they would become a part of Your kingdom. God, I pray for those who are living in their own kingdom right now, trying to develop their own kingdom, that You would convict them of sin and that they would recognize You are the God of the universe. They would receive and accept You today. God, thank You for this time. May Your name be praised. Amen.